friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you for being with us again this week on Conversations. We'll be talking to Dr. Dana Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, a really important organization that went to court against uh, Joe Biden's HHS recently to stop a guidance that would make emergency room doctors in every state have to perform abortions, if you can believe that. But first, we are really honored to have Professor Anthony Esselin of Magdalen College with us to discuss Dante and also to talk about his great new substack called Word and Song. It's a really um, great website where there's a combination of poetry and movies and, and beautiful music and everything predicated on this need to connect, reconnect with beauty and with all the things that elevate the soul. Welcome to the show, Professor Esselin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor to have you. I've been reading you for a very long time, and I'm always Gosh. very moved and touched by by the way that you weave in um, so many beautiful elements of our faith, but also beauty and poetry and, and all the things that elevate our soul towards God in ways that maybe we don't think about very often in this very pedestrian, very material world. Uh, yeah, we're, if, if only we were pedestrian. I mean, we, I think we'd have to improve quite a lot to get back up to the level of pedestrian. There you go. That's so, true. Right, <laughs> right now we've got the, the world out there is, is garish and and hideous mm-hmm. i mean the world that our poor kids uh, grow up in so far from pedestrian which is at least gray and ordinary mm-hmm. it's a really sick and depraved place for the poor kids it's dystopic right there's something about yeah. uh it, it, it's something if you'd made a movie about it 80 years ago you would have been you would have said oh that'll never happen the way that young people are growing up in in a virtual world uh removed from everything that's that's natural and 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 enters through all the senses right it's all very um very cold even even 60 years ago uh people would have been appalled by the by the loneliness Mm -hmm, loneliness of, of the current world right the fact that the Men and women have almost nothing good to say to one another about the sexes. Um, so few people are getting married. Uh, it's a you know it's a world in which the basic things of of, of human life aren't even getting done. We had uh, Carl um, Truman on last week, um, and I and yeah. we we spoke about we touched on these issues too from a different perspective. We were talking about his book Strange New World and modern conceptions of the self. But I, I feel that there's a right. lot of there's a lot to be woven into this uh, to that about the modern conceptions of the self and what the self really needs to flourish. Yeah, well, if you were living in a in a healthy society. You uh, find yourself already born in a web of human relationships, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, you are born into a culture with its poetry, its song, its traditional celebrations, and its worship, Mm -hmm. right? Because there is no culture without the divine. There's no culture without divine worship. And these give you meaning. These, These give you a self that transcends your own age, Mm-hmm. Right, uh, but with all of that gone, and Professor Truman is quite right about this. The people are engaged in a desperate enterprise to fill up the gap, 
and they fill it up with fevered imaginations of their selves, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't work because it's not grounded in anything real. It, it doesn't extend beyond the person. It doesn't uh, reach back into the ages past. It doesn't reach forward into the future. It's, it has no culture to it. Ultimately, it's just a, a matter of self-will, and the will can change on a dime. I mean, there's no real society in it. Uh, no society is really possible when that's how people define themselves. I'm myself. I've created myself. And it's a it's 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 a lonely thing. It's it's sick and lonely. And the response to the loneliness makes matters worse. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm in my I'm in my my second half of my life, I've I've passed nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita, as you say, and, and Dante as yeah. he starts, and we'll talk about Dante. Um, I find that what shocks me is that we've chosen loneliness uh, as as a culture, as a as a species, <laughs> now and in, in yeah. our modern times. But loneliness only really starts to be apparent later on in life when when all those relationships we didn't build in the first half of our life uh, suddenly become tremendously necessary and the loneliness becomes unbearable. Well, I, I think, yeah, it, the kids in school are even feeling it. Um, yeah, well, you know what? I, I sometimes mention to my students that I don't know of a, of a word in Middle English that carries the meaning lonely. Mm. I don't think there was such a word because the phenomenon didn't exist. How could mm-hmm. you be lonely? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could be hated by a bunch of people. Uh, people can think that you're a louse. You're not going to be lonely mm-hmm. because you are constantly among other people. You're usually outdoors and you're doing things. Mm-hmm. You may be doing good things. You may be doing bad things, but you're doing things. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's no longer the case. I, uh, I, I've said and I got taken to task for this. Oh, this is just silly. This is not true. And I, heck, heck, it is true. How many of our uh, young people reach the age of 20, 30, and they can recall not a single day in which they were doing something with a member of the opposite sex that they really liked or loved, something that was thoroughly innocent, wasn't necessarily oriented towards marriage, right? But just, you say, a boy and a girl, you go and do something together and you, and you have fun. There's nothing to regret because you're not doing anything wrong. It's it's just all this. So you, you you spend the day at a at, at a at a miniature golf place, and then you go get something to eat. And how many millions of our young people have never had a day like that? Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine the things that our young people aren't doing, right? The things that uh, yeah. that were structured by God or by evolution or both um, to to need to need deeply those those that intricate yeah. web of relationships, the the yeah. constant um, the constant contact with our brother man. And it's just missing from our lives. But uh, Professor Esselin, I always, you know, I do this very often when I when I start an interview with someone who's very interesting. <laughs> and uh, thank you. Uh, we start talking about top, a topic, uh, and and it's wonderful. And I want to talk to you so much about so many things. But I have to mention <laughs> the reason that you're on the show, which is a couple of reasons. I wanted to okay. ask you. You have a, a couple. Uh, you have two projects. Uh, you have many, many irons on the fire, many beautiful things right. that you do, and many projects that you're involved in. But there were two that I wanted to talk to you about, and it actually goes back to what we're talking about because I think it's your way of battling um, this uh, this loneliness of the modern self and connecting connecting people back again to the things that we're missing. One of them right. is uh, your Substack, 
uh, that I just I just took a deep dive into it and I, I enjoyed it so much and well, it's called the world word no 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 and song word and song yes I'm, I'm, word and song That's it's right. absolutely wonderful it by, by typing in word and song or you go to anthonyeslin.com and it'll show up yeah I mean again I'm what I'm trying to do here is uh, it, it's a sweet task it's it's introducing people who are going to be grateful for it because they you know, they say, I didn't know this. Wow, this is something. But introducing people to poetry, which should be in their heritage. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the common heritage of mankind until now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a poem of the week that I discuss a little bit. And uh, I read, I recite for, for um, paid subscribers. Uh, we, we have uh, a hymn of the week. So I, I get a traditional hymn and... You know, discuss what the poet is doing, what's going on in it, what makes it a great hymn. Um, we have a film recommendation of the week, and I go to some, I go to classic films, and again, a little bit of discussion. This is what you're going to see. This is why this is a great movie. Uh, a, a word of the week that's a foray into the, the English language and its funny history and whatnot. Um, sometimes a song, which is what my wife does. So this is way, by way of reintroducing people or introducing them to popular music of a very high quality from, from of old, not really that old, some of it within our own lifetimes, but um, it's really remarkable the kinds of things that ordinary people used to listen to or sing and people with a decent amount of talent composed and played. Almost all that is gone now. So so she's reintroducing people to great songs from our past, great some of the great American songs too. And uh, we have we have uh, podcasts every week. Sometimes it's a longer poem that I talk about and recite. Sometimes a chapter from one of my books, and, and or sometimes a lecture that I've given. And it's I think it's a, I think it's really various, right? It's it's not like anything else. That'll be out there. It's not just another Substack thing, right? Um, and what what is your overarching uh, desire here? What do you what what need is, are you trying to fill? I I understand that because of our our rotten schools, we have almost no poetry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so poetry is totally foreign to us, and that makes us weird. That makes us like unique in the history of mankind. I also know that uh, music has been in the tank, so so many people have never heard uh, great great songs that were once played for millions of Americans to sing or to listen to or to dance to. I know from uh, unfortunate experience uh, that uh, uh, most churchgoers, both Catholic and Protestant, do not know um, the great hymns of our tradition. And these hymns go back 1,700 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm in the position of knowing about some of these things and saying, hey, come on here and look. I got something to show you here. Look at this. Isn't this great? The idea, I guess, is to reclaim the good and the beautiful and the true in a a winsome way, in a way that uh, I hope uh, people will find a great deal of fun. My husband Um, has a reading group and and they meet once a month and they read articles and, and they do all sorts of interesting reading, not really books because men have short attention spans normally. And as, as my husband says, and it's not true by nature. <laughs> well, these men, not true by nature. these modern men, these modern professional men that he has. And he, um, a few months ago, he did a poetry, bring your favorite poem. And it was spectacular. I wish that I could have been, I'm not allowed to go because I'm a woman, but he said okay. that men brought fabulous poems and, and read them out, declaimed them 
These were men that he never thought would would have that kind of. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Isn't they that interesting? Really like, they would ru- really enjoy the. Well, I think everybody would enjoy it, but they really enjoy this this word and song. You know, and I can imagine a bunch. If we have a theme every week, right? This week, this week's theme is labor work because of Labor Day and, and so on. Um, and, and another a theme to be coming will be autumn. You know, but I can imagine a bunch of guys getting together. Uh, if, for instance, the theme of the week would be fighting, mm-hmm. military. Lots right? of great military poetry. Soldiers. Oh, yeah. And uh, then, uh, you know, I can imagine them saying, hey, well, let's let's try to sing the song that he recommends here, mm-hmm. the hymn. And uh, Joe, why don't you read the poem that he he's recommending or let's listen to him why uh, why do you the read poem. the why do you read the poems out loud instead of just having us read them on your on your substack well well uh the, the reading out loud is for i have to admit it's for paid subscribers but um i think that you don't really begin to uh grasp a poem until you hear it mm-hmm. and that also includes hearing it not just from somebody else but you hear yourself mm perform it right you hear yourself recite it and that was the way ordinary people mm-hmm. experienced poetry up until about 1900 poetry was closely alive everybody understood that poetry was close cousin to music people would get together to hear poems right and uh, some of that tradition lasted into the 20th century but now it's almost entirely gone because poets have ceased to write things that are meant to be heard. They gave over meter and rhyme, for instance, and um, the results have been spotty at best, disastrous at worst, and they've alienated They've alienated most of their audience. Most people like music. Mm-hmm. All those people who would be attracted to poetry because of its musical qualities have been alienated. And, uh, and, and there goes most of your audience. And, and, the, and the modern poet that has abandoned the musicality of poetry and its appeal to the masses, why did he do that? Why did the poet do that? Is it, is it like the, the modern artist, the, the artist, the, the paint artist, no, the painter, who has abandoned the idea of pleasing um, yeah. and elevating the soul of the person who sees the art? Is that that same kind of a, a modern abandonment? Of is, part of it is that, right. So we, what we had, uh, I'll just take uh, T.S. Eliot for an example, right, what we had uh, between the wars, right, after war, the disaster of World War One, we had poets trying to come to grips with the collapse of an entire civilization. Mm-hmm. Civilization was in ruins. Uh, nothing has changed, by the way, in that regard. Uh, so what they felt they needed was a poetry that reflected the ruins. And what you got was poetry that used some of the old traditions and some of the old meters, but that deliberately cut them short or put them at odds with what wasn't musical at all um, in order to get at the essence of a world that had fallen to ruin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, unfortunately, it's really easy to begin to write poetry without meter. It's almost impossible to do it really well, but it's really easy to pretend to do it, to attempt to mm-hmm. do it. It's easy to dabble. You can, anyone can dabble in that kind of poetry. Yeah, I mean, just like anybody can dabble throwing paint on a canvas, Mm -hmm. but you can't dabble at painting the human figure. You have to actually know what you're doing. You have to have technique and and skill. That's right. And with meter and rhyme, there's there's not a whole lot by way of dabbling that you can do because you're going to be shown up to be incompetent at it pretty quick, just like somebody trying to draw the human figure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if all you're doing is doing something of grotesque or obscene, I mean, anybody could do that. Perhaps not well, but anybody can do it. And uh, so we then had, we've had a hundred years of um, the abandonment of the old forms. And some people have tried to resist it, but uh, the damage has been done. Uh, there's no audience anymore. It, um, was it was it partly a drive for egalitarianism? Because certain people weren't, did, never, weren't able to be educated enough or had enough access uh, to, no, to know, these I, higher forms of culture. So let's just dumb everything down and, and flatten you know, the landscape. Don't, actually, I don't think so. In this case, I don't think so. See, the ordinary people, okay, mm-hmm. they still liked... And they still do, right? I mean, they just don't have good stuff. I mean, they'll go for Hallmark card verse, you know, every time. Um, The ordinary people liked meter Mm -hmm. and rhyme. They liked music. Uh, They liked melody, right? This was a way of sticking it to them and showing how superior we are. To them. The okay. elites to the ordinary the elites, people, right? The elites to the oh, ordinary people. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you were elites. smart like us, you wouldn't be dependent on these on these easy to appreciate right. um, old fashioned things. To understand that my throwing a bunch of paint on a canvas or mm-hmm. my painting colored rectangles or just a blank you canvas, are not smart enough, <laughs> just white canvas. Oh, we're okay. smart. We know better. You're a dope. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was seconded by the academic establishment. That's just deadly. Well, it's um, like architecture, right? Architecture has taken the same form. Everything that was pleasing right. to live in has been replaced by um, things that appeal to a tiny sliver of the architectural academia, academic uh, yeah. establishment. They, they pretend to love them. They pretend to love them too, right? And they win big prizes, right? All of the arts have gone in the, the direction of the snob who you know rewards what is unnatural or perverse or ugly or incoherent or without any structure and uh basically that loses that loses your your, your whole popular audience okay but um, but traditionally the the real artist the old-fashioned artist what was his aim what was he trying to do was he trying to elevate souls bring them to god raise them from the mire some of them were trying to bring them to god some of them were were trying to, they, they had an idea in mind or a feeling in mind, and they wanted to embody that somehow. And it, it, they they understood that in order to do that well, they had to be masters of the craft, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a Caravaggio tormented man that he was, great sinner, perhaps a great repenter too. It's like Caravaggio's soul gets taken up with some idea that he's got to express. What is what it be like to be Mary Magdalene at the moment of your repentance before you've gone to Jesus? Mm. How can I paint that woman? Okay. I know how other people have painted her. I got something different in mind. You see Caravaggio's Mary Magdalene. She's cut her hair a bit short. She's dressed as a high-class prostitute. The tools of her trade are littered on the floor, string of pearls, so on and an alabaster jar of ointment that's there. And she has her hands folded like this in a single tear. One tear. One tear. Down her cheeks. To express every every moment of remorse. That's it. That's it. Right? Caravaggio, he could do that. He could do that. Um, because he had, he had this intense experience of uh, sin. And repentance, and he and he had a desire to 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 nail down this moment that's universal in in every human, right? Yeah. That crosses centuries right. and crosses right. and, cultures, and to do it better than anybody else had done it before. Because I think he was supremely ambitious, very complicated guy, right? Uh, but you know, now who would who even condescends to learn the craft? 
you have poets who have never really studied the craft of poetry. And the same thing with us. Same thing can be said for the other arts. When Dante wrote, he wrote having in mind all the great writers of the past, both in Latin and Italian and old Provençal and current day French, right? And he wanted to master that art. He wanted to be, I think, the greatest poet who ever lived. And he knew he had to study humbly in order to uh, even take the first step along that way. Thank you for bringing us to Dante. (laughs) (laughs) We had to get to Dante. We had to get back. Tell us about your beautiful Dante project. I'm a subscriber, by the way. Uh, to your Dante uh, well, project, I, I, and I've, tell I've, us about I've, it, please. I've translated the Divine Comedy. Yes. This was quite a while ago now, yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 three, uh, the three main, right, the three sections, the Inferno, the Purgatory, and the Paradise. Mm-hmm. That's, that all can be had. It's published by Penguin Random House. We've got Italian on one side and English on the other. Notes in the back that I wrote to be helpful for my students. An introduction in each case. Page glosses for names that you want to identify or, or, you know, funny words uh, so that you don't have to go looking up in the back. And illustrations by Gustave Doré and appendices to give you some of Dante's contemporaries or his sources like Thomas Aquinas and so on. So everything that you could need to help you out is there. and it's in poetic form, and I believe that the poetry is entirely readable. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example, okay? This is at the beginning of Purgatory, right? Uh, I dare anybody to say, oh, no, no, that's too, that's too hard for me. That's too hard for me. Just the first couple of lines. My little ship of ingenuity now hoists her sails to speed through better waters, leaving behind so pitiless a sea. And I will sing about that second realm given the human soul to purge its sin and grow worthy to climb to paradise. <laughs> that, you know, okay. And uh, shortly after, right, he's looking up at the sky. He notices various constellations. It's just before sunrise. The sky is this deep blue um, before the sun has risen. It's absolutely beautiful. And he, he suddenly looks around him uh, and says, I saw beside me an old man alone, so reverend in his bearing and his look, no father claims more honor from his son. His beard was long and mingled with white strands, similar to the color of his hair. It lay upon his breast in double bands. The rays of the four holy stars on high adorned his face with such a brilliant gleam, it seemed the sun shone full upon his eye. And then this man asks Dante and Virgil, what are you doing here? Um, Who are you who have come up the blind stream to flee the prison of eternity? Said he, shaking those venerable plumes. Who was your guide? What lamp has led your feet? Escaping from the sea of that deep night, forever blackening the infernal pit. Because he knows they've come up from hell. Mm -hmm. What are you doing here? Right? Anybody can understand that. Absolutely. But why should right. we? Why should we all understand Dante? We? Give us give us your Dante pitch. Well, he's the greatest poet who ever lived. Mm-hmm. If if we consider Shakespeare a playwright, not a poet. Okay. Just put him in the category of playwright so we can leave the category of poet free. Dante is the greatest poet who ever lived. And the greatest poem ever written is the Divine Comedy. There is Pretty much nothing in human life or human nature that is not addressed in the Divine Comedy. If you ask what it is about, it's about everything. About everything we experience and everything we can imagine. What does it mean to be a sinner? 
what does it mean to fall in love? What is love anyway? Um, <laughs> can you love things that are bad? Yeah. What does it mean to turn to God? Who is God? What does it mean to be a real society? How does law function in a just society? What's the difference between justice and mercy? What does sin do to you inside, quite apart from any punishment that you may suffer hereafter? What are the various sins? What are the various virtues that combat them? What's the difference between a life of active virtue and a life of contemplation? Who was Christ? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to have a face? And does Dante, uh, does Dante satisfy with his answers? Yes. Yes. But not because he's Dante. Well, I mean, he's a genius, right? He's a genius who's read everything he could get his hands on and it has soaked into him. But he's, he's doing what Augustine said that he himself was doing with regard to the Neoplatonist philosophers who came before him who were not even Christian. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, Dante's standing on the shoulders of giants, mm-hmm. right? He himself is a giant. But see, the, the thing is, if you, if you abandon the tradition, it's, you, you know, it's, te- it's like technologically you say, well, you know, we're, we're going to forget it, everything that we know and we're going to reinvent wheels, all the time. Well, don't be surprised then if you go bumping along and your wheel gets stuck after a hundred feet uh, because it's not perfectly round and you didn't really know what an axle was supposed to do and all this other stuff. Well, Dante's standing on the shoulders of uh, poetic and intellectual and um, uh, artistic giants. Uh, it, it, because of that, what we have in him is not just something whipped up by a single person somewhere. We've, we've got the distilled wisdom of millennia here, right? Everything that is known to man in Dante's time finds its place in the Divine Comedy. There's nothing comparable to this work nowadays. Professor Esselin, I'm very sorry to say we're out of time, but I'm sure that all our listeners are running to their bookcase to find their their copy of Dante. They should probably better go to Amazon and get your translation. That's right. And uh, they can just look it up, right? Dante, The Divine Comedy, Anthony Esselin. And also they should um, subscribe to your Substack. How do they find your Substack? Uh, Go to anthonyesselin.com. And it'll show up. And there is a link there to my books, too, so that they can they can find uh, the translations there also. Well, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us, Professor. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and a favorite friend of mine, Dr. Donna Harrison, Executive Director of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, is back on with us. Welcome to the show, Donna. 
Thank you so much, Gracie. You know, I love having you on because you have you have such a wonderful, a universal understanding of all the ways that uh, medicine uh, and patients, which is everybody, right, is being threatened by all these terrible pro-death ideologies that are just somehow taking over the world, taking over the way we, we interact with the world, even in, in this most intimate part of our lives, which is medical care. No, you're right. And it's, it's amazing the extent of misinformation that's out there. And some of it is propagated by people that are responsible for giving us good information. So, Well, I, I would go so far as to say most, most of it is propagated by, you know, there's, a, there's, we, you hear a lot about misinformation in the media, but I find um, that the real sources of dangerous misinformation are coming from people who, who do know better and who are using statistics and numbers that are gotten in very bad ways and, you know, ways that aren't accurate to gin up opposition to the, to the things that they dislike. You know, things like, you know, they, they dislike proper treatment of, of unborn children as patients, mm-hmm. which is just which is just normal, classical Western Hippocratic medicine to think yeah, of a, of a pregnant right. woman as a woman carrying oh. a, a second patient just as valuable as the first. Yeah, that's right. And we've always, as physicians said, we our job is to heal and not to kill. Mm-hmm. And and we've we've always had that stance. I mean, that was part of the the understanding of what medical care has been for, you know, 2,500 years. It's been a long time. Well, and I'm sorry to report, and we've reported often on this show that under the Biden administration, there's been a concerted push from the administration to really put um, a lot of these things that uh, that go against the culture of life and medicine, to put it on steroids and to write it into every regulation from coming out of the federal government, which does affect us no matter in what state of the union you live, you're going to be affected because the hospital that you go to accepts Medicaid dollars or um, and, and you can't get away from it. So there's several several of these issues that, that keep coming up and the way they affect medicine. But one we wanted to talk to you about is uh, some time ago, the Biden administration released a finding, released a, an executive uh, order on something called MTALA. It's a little complicated, but I thought that you'd be the perfect person to explain it to us. Yeah, we, we read that uh, guidance from the uh, administration. And basically what what the administration did was they took a law called MTALA, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment uh, Act, uh, which requires a hospital or emergency facility to treat and stabilize regardless of the patient's ability to pay. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was that was an act enacted years and years ago. And it has never been applied to elective abortion until now. So as part of the Biden administration pulling out all the stops um, by their own admission, what they've said, what what they said was that they were going to use MTALA to try to force other people who would ordinarily object to elective abortion into being complicit with the procedure. So this is extremely concerning because MTALA is a good act that basically says if a patient can't pay, you must stabilize them. You must take care of a pregnant mom, for example. But what MTALA also says is you have to also stabilize and take care of her preborn child. Mm-hmm. So MTALA explicitly requires the stabilization and care for the preborn child. So what the Obama or what the uh, current administration did was to use the term health, which is a very slippery term, a term that can mean anything, and to say that you have to treat conditions which threaten the mom's health 
And we're not talking irreparable damage to a major bodily organ. We all get that. We're talking things like, I don't want to be pregnant. And so it's a danger to my well-being or health to continue this pregnancy. Well, well, what does that mean? That's not a physical threat. So the Biden administration uses this definition of health that was proposed years and years and years ago, actually at the same time that Roe versus Wade was passed. So Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion, struck down the laws in all 50 states, said that you can't make any law that threatens a woman's health. All the laws have to have a health exception. Well, on the same day that the Supreme Court issued Roe versus Wade, they also issued a companion decision called Doe versus Bolton, which defined health. And Doe versus Bolton defined health as any physical, psychological, social, familial, or any other reason. So basically, health is the word that swallows the rule. It's the it's the health definition in Doe that allowed for abortion on demand through preg- through delivery. And so using that same health terminology, the current administration issued these new MTALA guidance saying that you must stabilize and treat anything that not only threatens a woman's life, but also threatens her health. Undefined. Donna, when, when I read that guidance, I was trying to come when I've been trying to understand what scenarios they might have been envisioning. So I know Mtala from my training. The reason Mtala was passed is because, like you said, a very good law is because, um, for instance, where I trained, I trained at a very big public hospital in downtown yeah. Miami. And everybody who didn't have private insurance had to be treated at our hospital because none of the other hospitals had the support from the county taxes and the, and the, the, right. the city taxes to, to take care of these patients who all our patients were basically uninsured and, and had no means to pay. Okay, yeah. So they belonged in our hospital. Because in the private hospitals and all the other hospitals, there was no support from the state and the country, uh, the the city and the county to to take care of these people. But yeah. when a woman would arrive at a at a private hospital in labor because she was down the street when she when she went into precipitous labor, for instance, the hospital would try to transfer her in the middle of her labor to another host to to our public hospital, and that was wrong for the woman and the baby because they should have taken good care of the wa- the mom and the baby, and when they were both stable, then they could be taken to our hospital. And right. then their care continues. So Mtala was a wonderful law, is a wonderful law, in, and it helps people receive the care, the emergency care that they need. So then yeah. this guidance comes out, and I'm trying to picture where, in which part of Mtala possibly could, what scenario exists where a woman shows up in the middle of an abortion and somebody has to continue her abortion or finish it? I can't even imagine a scenario where in an emergency yeah. department you would be performing an elective abortion. Maybe you th- can think of one and can tell me. Yeah, so it's really cleverly tucked into the wording. And basically what what the new guidance said was that whether or not something is an emergency is is the judgment of the physician. And if the physician decides that something is an emergency, then that physician can say, okay, this is a threat to the mom's health and I'm going to treat it, okay? And if in that physician's judgment, an elective abortion is what's needed to treat this, then that preempts state law. So what they were doing was they they were doing an end run Mm. around the people who Mm -hmm. have said, we don't want abortion in our state, but the guidance would allow an abortionist to tell a woman to go to the ER, and if that abortionist was on staff, that that the abortionist would meet her in the ER, and she would say, I'm in mental distress because of this baby, and he would say, that sounds like a a risk to your health, we're going to go ahead and abort. And it would force, it would allow the abortionist 
to uh, completely skirt state law, and it would also force the hospital, health-based, faith-based healthcare systems to be complicit in that because to, to say, oh, you can't do an elective abortion in our hospital system would be kind of tantamount to saying, to an MTALA violation, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and that's significant fines for the healthcare system and for the physicians. So, so that's the one side of it. The abortionist who just tells his patient or her patient to come in and I'll treat your emergency care, in my judgment, um, and force the hospital to be complicit with it. The other side is if a woman starts a mifeprex abortion at home and starts bleeding, mm. comes into the hospital, but she still has a baby with a heartbeat. Okay? She's not hemorrhaging. She's got a little bit of bleeding and spotting. The baby's got a heartbeat. They could, in, I mean, really what Abdella would require you to do in that case is give progesterone. And finish help. finish the abortion. No, 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 to give progesterone, not mifepristone. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the original Imtala, original Imtala. Yeah, the original Imtala mm-hmm. to give progesterone. To support, to support her to pregnancy. Support, right, to stabilize mm-hmm. the, the, the pre-born child. That's what the original Imtala would say. Mm-hmm. But this Imtala could be read to say, oh, well, she's coming in, she's got bleeding, it's therefore an emergency, and you must complete that abortion. And see, that's, that's where... You have the federal government stepping in and forcing something that was never meant by the MTALA legislation. And that's why we sued the federal government. We said this, is, this was never the intent of MTALA. This, was, this isn't the reading of the statute by any way, shape, or means. And furthermore, the federal government does not have the authority to preempt state law. States control the practice of medicine. And so our point was, you, you don't have the this, this statutory authority under MTALA to preempt state law. And, and so uh, we were very delighted that um, the, the uh, judge in the case agreed with us. And so currently, the um, guidance that was issued by HHS is stayed, meaning HHS cannot enforce that guidance. They can't put this weird reading on MTALA and force healthcare systems to be complicit with elective abortion. And they can't exonerate abortionists who bring their patients in through the ER and want to do an elective abortion because there's no life-threatening medical reason to do this abortion. You cannot, this MTALA guidance cannot exonerate those physicians and insulate them from the effects of state law. So that's why we were delighted that, that that was the the judgment of the well, congratulations uh, and i'm very okay. happy for everyone involved in medicine uh, whether it's hospital systems the nurses that would have to be assisting at these at these procedures right. doctors that would find themselves made to finish an abortion in progress even though they hadn't um even though there's no reason to the woman is not not hemorrhaging she's not sick she's she can very well there's no danger to her life so how wonderful yeah. that that you know it makes me think though that the um that the way that the that that the narrative is being pushed, that this narrative of women having the, all this distress that requires an abortion, right? Like it's not just the health of the mother, but the health of the mother in the sense of great emotional distress. I've heard this being pushed in several different ways. Um, uh, maybe I've I've heard an instance of of a woman being possibly in the process of a miscarriage and wanting the process to be to be hurried up through an abortion. Mm-hmm. 
and the doctor saying, no, let's wait and see. You may be able to, this baby may, may, may survive. And then presented on the left, um, from the left, from the pro-abortion side as, well, the woman's been made to, you know, to endure these days of agony when a quick abortion procedure would have, um, you know, stopped this miscarriage process. What do you think about that? Do you think that the left is being, pro-abortion side is being effective in making this, the, the women, the woman in distress uh, view of things so pop, you know, really, really striking a chord in people? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I have to do one clarification first. Mm-hmm. Though, Tell me, yes. And, and that is that the, the, our suit against the administration is not, is not final. Right, the right. The decision was of the judge was Sorry, to simply just... Yes. To, to stay enforcement mm-hmm. so so we're not anywhere near final but at least we have the enfor- the uh, enforcement of that statute or, or that guidance stayed um yeah this whole idea that somehow miscarriage and abortion are the same thing is is one of those remarkably insane pieces of misspeak that i i, I think i've ever heard mm-hmm. it's very clear the difference between a miscarriage and an abortion in a miscarriage the babies died in an abortion, the purpose of the abortion is to take a healthy pregnancy or a, a baby who's alive and to kill that baby. So if a woman has miscarried or she's in the process of miscarrying, then the baby's already died. And so whether she decides to continue for a little while and see if her body can pass the baby and the, and the placenta naturally, or whether she says, I want a DNC now, that's not a really a morally fraught question. It's really up to her. And any OB-GYN, when there's a baby who's already died, will separate the mom and the baby that's already died. That's, there, there isn't even any moral issue. The, the difficulty we have with OB-GYN is that there are terms mm-hmm. that mean many different things. Okay? Yes, so the term miscarriage can be applied as a threatened miscarriage, which means the mom's having some bleeding or spotting, but the baby's still alive. Mm-hmm. That's not a miscarriage. That is when the mom's having bleeding or spotting and the baby's still alive. So as long as the baby's alive, we would not go in and end the life of that baby. Not unless there were some life-threatening situation where continuing the pregnancy would really cause the mom to be at risk of dying. For example, ectopic pregnancy. Now, most of the time in ectopic pregnancy, like about 93% of the time, there is no fetus with a heartbeat. What happened is that of all the thousands of things that have to happen when the chromosomes of the sperm and egg come together, one or two didn't. And so the baby only developed to a certain point, but then died. But the placenta can continue to grow. And because the placenta can continue to grow, that ectopic pregnancy can rupture. So in those cases where there's no fetus with the heartbeat, there, no embryo with the heartbeat, there's no moral problem. You mm-hmm. you take care of the uh, you take care of the ectopic either by surgery, taking out the tube, or by opening the tube and taking out the pregnancy tissue, or by giving methotrexate. All of those work in the cases where there's no living baby. Mm-hmm. In the cases where there is a living baby, the mom is actually even more at risk. Because when the baby's alive, that means that the pregnancy tissue, the, the placenta is going to grow at not quite a normal rate, but more like a normal rate, which means that rupture is much, much more likely. So in those cases, we do separate the mom and the baby. That is done understanding that we will lose the baby. But if we could save the baby, we would. 
mm-hmm. we we don't go in with the intent I'm going to go in and kill the baby. What we go in with is the intent that I know that if this tubal pregnancy ruptures, that the mom has a very high likelihood of dying, bleeding to death. And so, in order to save at least one, I will separate the mom and the baby. As technology advances, we're hopeful that maybe someday we can save two in that situation. But we separate under the principle of double effect. We don't separate with the intent to kill the baby. So pregnancy management is way different than an elective abortion. And miscarriage management is way different than elective abortion. And, and that's one of the myths that the other side is trying to spin, that, that it's the same thing. The reason they're trying to spin that is to avoid talking about what is the real issue. So in this era, after Dobbs, what we have is a situation where the states can say, we don't want elective abortion in our state. We don't want people going in and intentionally killing a preborn human being for no reason. And that's a very reasonable thing to say, because intentionally killing a preborn human being for no medical reason is not medical care. It's, it has nothing to do with medical care. It's killing a human being for social reasons. You, Dr. Harrison, as the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, have been able to promote this idea of, of medicine as a life, as an entirely life-saving and life-preserving profession, as, as is so wonderful, as it should be, as it has historically been. And, and thank you for your work. Where can our uh, listeners learn more about pro-life your, your organization of pro-life OBGYNs. Go to our website, which is aaplog.org, or just Google pro-life OBGYNs, and we have wonderful resources. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, which will bring us into the heart of Jesus' mission, the core of our faith, the way we're supposed to receive God's action in our life and what he wants us to do as a result. It involves three parables of the Lord, including the most famous short story of all time. St. Luke gives us the setting. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus, but the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees were literally, in Hebrew, the separated ones, those who distanced themselves from sin and sinners. They were scandalized that Jesus would have any contact with sinners at all, not to mention welcome them, treat them with kindness, and even share meals and fraternity with them. They failed to recognize that they too were sinners. It was to them and their attitude about sin and sinners that Jesus addressed the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The attitude of the scribes and Pharisees didn't expire at a time long ago in a land far away. Many Christians today, for example, don't rejoice on Christmas, Ash Wednesday, Palm Sunday, and Easter, when people who do not regularly practice the faith come back to church, crowd the parking lot, and occupy the pews they normally sit in. Many don't rejoice to see the person who bullied them in school, or local criminal, or the person who destroyed their best friend's marriage, or family members who gossip about them come to church converted. Jesus' stories this Sunday are still so relevant because many of us are more like the Pharisees in the gospel than we might want to admit. In the parable of the lost sheep, we see how God loves us individually. Jesus the Good Shepherd calls each one of us by name, and none of us is a number to him. It might seem strange that a shepherd would leave 99 sheep and go out in search of one lost stray, but most of us don't have that type of love for animals in general, especially if we have a hundred of them or more. But Jesus was saying, if you had 10 young kids and one of them didn't come home, wouldn't you leave the other nine to go out in search of your child? Jesus loves each of us more than the greatest earthly mom or dad loves each of his or her children. He will come to find us. 
And he will rejoice when he finds us and leads us home. The parable of the lost coin at first glance makes even less sense than that of the lost sheep. What woman who lost a dime or a quarter would spend all types of time sweeping the house looking for it and then throw a big party upon finding it? But we need to know what the coin was she lost. When a woman was married, she had a wedding veil, normally with ten precious coins strung like a crown that constituted her dowry. Not only were the coins precious, but their symbolic value priceless. The present-day analogy would be if a woman had lost her wedding ring. She would indeed pick up the sofa cushions, look under the couch, sweep everywhere, frantically looking for it. And if she found it, she would certainly rejoice. Both parables led to a similar application by Jesus. In just the same way, he said, there will be more joy in heaven among the angels of God over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need. God rejoices more in reconciling one of his sons or daughters than a shepherd rejoices finding a sheep or a woman rejoices finding her precious coin or a mom or dad rejoices finding a lost infant at the mall. In fact, Jesus says that the joy is more or greater over one sinner's return than heaven rejoices over the fidelity of 99 holy ones. No wonder why Pope Francis loves to say God's greatest joy is forgiving. These stories are the warm-up acts that introduce us to the parable of the prodigal son. Or better, the parable of lost sons, because each son is lost and has something important to teach us. The younger brother's essential sin was not that he blew his inheritance. It was to treat his father as if he were dead. To ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive is tantamount to saying, You're dead to me, old man. I can't wait for you to croak. Give me now what you're planning to give me when you finally breathe your last. And the father, doubtless more concerned about the direction of his son's life, the nursing any wounds at his son's ingratitude and presumption, gave him the inheritance, probably figuring that it would be the last chance for the son to learn who the father really was. After the son had squandered the money in his dignity and an immoral life, he had fallen lower than the swine, even longing somewhat subhumanly for what the pigs ate. That's when his conversion began. Coming to a sense, as St. Luke wrote, he realized that his father's hired hands were always well fed. The fact that the father gave hired hands or day laborers who are not entitled to food, more than enough food to eat, awakened the son to his father's goodness that he hadn't seen before. He decided to return to his father's house to apologize for his sin and to beg to be treated like a hired hand. But he still didn't get his father. The father couldn't stop loving him as a son. Seeing his son approach, the father ran out to embrace him. He called for the finest garment to be put around him to cover up all the swine excrement. He put a signet ring on his finger to show that he still had power of attorney over the father's goods. He placed sandals on his feet to symbolize that he was free to go about as he pleased. And he commanded that the fattened calf, normally reserved for weddings and the biggest celebrations, be killed for a feast. Whereas the son had asked to be treated like a hired hand lower than slaves, the father restored him to full dignity and through a celebration like he had never had even before he had wandered. The older son is a figure like the scribes and the Pharisees. He too never grasped the father's goodness or love. When he got angry and refused to enter the party the father was throwing for his brother's return, he passive-aggressively waited outside until the father came out to beg him to enter. He replied with anger that betrayed that he had never related to his father as a son, but only as a slave. Look, he said, all these years I served you, and not once did I ever disobey your orders. We almost want him to say, Master. And it got worse. Yet when the son of yours returns, he quipped, he couldn't even refer to his flesh and blood as his brother. He enviously protested that he had never been given even a young goat for, for a party with his friends, yet the older brother got the fattened calf. 
While the younger brother now at least understood the love of the father and was rejoicing in it, the older brother was still in a judgmental, bitter pigsty of his own. We don't know whether the older brother eventually entered the party. It was still an open question for the scribes and the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus, whether they would share Jesus' joy and come to welcome and eat with the same sinners, the same prodigal sons and daughters with whom Jesus was dining. Jesus' powerful parables lead us to make two fundamental applications. First, do we recognize that we're sinners called by God to be reconciled? That at times we've wandered from the Father through sin and treated him as good as dead? Do we come to our senses, recognize his goodness, and come home? The parables are meant to communicate what God seeks to do for each of us through the sacrament of penance, to restore us to our dignity and divine filiation, to fill us with his life and joy. The father says, my son was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. That's what happens in every good confession. Every reconciliation is a resurrection when we're raised from the dead by the father's mercy, which is why Jesus founded the sacrament on Easter Sunday evening. The sacrament is God's great lost and found department. So when was the last time you made a good confession? When was the last time you gave God joy by coming to receive his mercy? This weekend in preparation for mass would be a great time to go. Second, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, we need to be praying for others to receive God's mercy, helping them to be reconciled to God and rejoicing when they convert and return to God. Since heaven rejoices more over one repentant sinner, the way we please God most is by helping to bring many people one at a time to receive his divine mercy. When was the last time we encouraged family members and friends to come with us to the sacrament of mercy? Whom can we invite to come this weekend? This Sunday at Mass, God will prepare for us not a fattened calf, but his son, the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. Through a good confession and preparation for the feast, he wants to renew us in the finest robe of our baptismal garment, restore us to our dignity as children and heirs, and send us forth with sandals free to glorify him by our life through running out to greet others in his name with the same joy and mercy with which he never ceased to run to embrace us. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 